0: This episode is sponsored by Nexo.io and Quantstamp.
1: Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast, as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey.
2: Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. The horrific events of the past weeks have given rise to sweeping predictions about a potential new world order. People are talking about a bipolar world in which Russia, China, and other nations align in opposition to the West, with significantly less integration between the two sides' economies, monetary systems, and technologies. It's heady, unsettling, and important stuff. And it's acutely relevant to the crypto community because these shifts are linked to how digital money technologies will shape the evolution of the global financial system. In all that discussion, Africa sometimes gets a mention, but in my mind, not nearly enough. How that continent develops technologically, and particularly with regards to financial technology, is critical for the future of the global economy. Africa is home to 1.3 billion people, or about 16% of the world's population. But this is critical. With 70% of them under the age of 30, it is the youngest continent. And as such, it is expected to grow to 2.5 billion people by 2050, which will rocket its share of the total to 25%. Africa is also rich in minerals and other resources. And contrary to stereotypes that it is a region that consumes technology created elsewhere rather than creating its own, there are many centers of innovation across the continent, And that's especially so in the realm of money, where it has been a world leader ever since the advent of M-Pesa in Kenya 15 years ago. This land, filled with opportunities and challenges, has become something of a battleground in the future of money. China has invested heavily in infrastructure in many African countries and is expected at some time to promote access to the blockchain, financial, and digital currency services that it is rapidly developing. So understanding Africa's approach to this technology is vital. Very few people have the kind of experience in dealing with all of that as this week's guest. Elizabeth Rossiello, who is a second timer on Money Reimagined, is the CEO of ASA Finance, which she initially founded as BitPesa in 2013 to develop faster, cheaper and more easily accessible payments in Kenya. This week, ASA announced a major partnership with Exchange Powerhouse FTX to build continent-wide infrastructure, education programs, and crypto exchange and payment rail solutions that will help to accelerate Africa's integration into the rapidly emerging web3 economy. It's an ambitious vision, and I'm really looking forward to digging into it with Elizabeth. But before we do that, let's bring in my co-host Sheila Warren. Hi Sheila. Hey Michael. So, we should be frank with people here. This is a rather strange situation because both of us happen to be in Austin at the moment which should mean that we could for the first time you know having put together a podcast 2 years ago but never actually having seen each other in person we should be able to do this in the same room sadly <laughs> we can't because we need a camera. We don't have a camera right now. So we're back to <laughs> the Zoom hell that COVID has. And we're not on Zoom specifically, but literally we're working off laptops once again. Yes. Um, I'm in this hotel room. You're in a different
0: one. I've got this strange art behind me. I know what to make of this. And here we are, the vagaries yeah. of COVID. I don't know if
2: people can hear the drum beat behind me. There's a bit of bass going on. I'm on 6th Street, the famous 6th Street of Boston, where the music starts playing at, I don't know, 11 a.m. So... But I think we've done a reasonable (laughs) job of muffling it out. And and it is just a nice touch to be here, South by Southwest. it's been Yeah, well certainly
0: more mundane (laughs) concerns that we're going to be focusing on this week when we talk about really the global financial order. And as you well know, know, I've been saying for a very long time that I think it's a matter of time before we see not just the rise of Africa, but the tussle over Africa that we're going to see between the Chinese influence and the United States particularly. And I do think Africa is poised to be a battleground for these two different approaches to digital currency Uh, and seemingly different approaches even to crypto so we're very interested to hear from elizabeth about her thoughts on the global positioning around all of this and what's happening in africa right now
2: well let's just do that right now let's bring elizabeth in how's it going (laughs) great
0: to see you so first of all congratulations this is a really big deal can you tell us about this and and about the plans and how this came to be sure
3: well you guys have known how much the team has been building across the continent for nine years, first as with Pesa, then as, as a finance, we've grown from east to west, south to north, up to Europe and over to the Mideast. east And we've been beating the drum about the future of finance and the future of digital finance growing out of this African continent, which is just this hotbed of innovation and population growth and digitally native young population. Finally, we found a partner who understands that to the extreme, one of the fastest growing companies in the world, certainly the fastest in this space, and one of the largest fintechs in the world, and led by a visionary leader who truly understands that disruption is the way to go forward. And so it's been a great partnership so far. And we're really excited to announce what we're going to be working on and what we've already started working on to bring Web3 to the African continent. In a way, that's not an afterthought, but that's really at the foundation of the movement.
2: You know, I would struck, Elizabeth, by the multifaceted aspect of this partnership. I mean, you're not just providing exchange facilities, but you're looking at a whole host of other infrastructure solutions and even education. Yeah, maybe just talk a little bit to that. How all these pieces come together as this sort of big Web3 goal being part of it?
3: Sure. So what we've built across the continent so far is all of the on-ramps and off-ramps into foreign exchange, treasury payment, business solutions. And from day one, we've offered digital currencies alongside fiat currencies. And we believe the hybrid model has worked really well, just as the way that mobile money goes right alongside bank payments across the continent. You have to be flexible and adapt to each local market. And now with this very robust proprietary infrastructure that we've built, we can offer every African user the ability to access FTX's full product suite and going forward, expand that product suite to be customized to the African markets that they operate in. So it's super exciting. So not only can we bring on payments and deposits and withdrawals in local African currencies to the existing FTX suite, which of course spans everything from spots to derivatives, tokenized stock, tokenized assets, NFTs, but now we can really think about how to bring african currency pairs african nfts african tokenized stock and tokenized assets in a way that's really never been offered before even with non-tokenized assets and non-tokenized stocks i mean it's super exciting and i think it's the the only way forward and when you think about some of the largest stock exchanges on the continent excepting maybe one or two most of the stock exchanges are held up by just a few equities that are maybe not so representative of the vibrancy and the the growth and the dynamism of this continent so so many of the young growing middle class population have been so excited to invest in new asset classes and so excited to put their money to work just like young people all over the world but they haven't had access through their local stock exchanges to their local non-tokenized asset classes it's incredibly restrictive and just mainly accessing international Assets or international investing or international trading is almost impossible due to the de-risking that's happened in the last 10 to 15 years in which Christine Lagarde so famously spoke about several years ago and brought attention on the global stage. We see that now with the Russia crisis is that in the war with Russia, very quickly the world can turn off a country. And unfortunately, for reasons far less than what Russia has been doing, Nigeria and other African countries have been turned off in many ways from the rest of the world. And that means that those entire populations have not had access to international asset classes and international investing. So this is really the first time we're going to see the young population and the dynamic, exciting, growing populations in these markets have access to the same assets that the rest of the world are investing in. And rather than, you know, create something smaller or a niche for the African continent, they're joining the FTX product suite. They're, they're going into the same platform as everybody else around the world. And that's because of the infrastructure that we've built to connect the continent into this powerhouse of exchange.
1: Nexo is the go-to platform for all things crypto. Invest in the hottest coins out there and start earning risk-free interest of up to 20% APR, paid out daily. Need cash ASAP but don't want to sell? Use your crypto as collateral and receive a credit line at premium rates. Open your Nexo account by March 31st and receive up to a $100 welcome bonus. Get started today at Nexo.io. That's N-E-X-O dot I-O. Quantstamp is hiring. Join the leading blockchain security company and help us secure the future of Web3. Working for Quantstamp means a fully remote, flexible environment where creativity and effectiveness are valued. Our clients include projects like Ethereum 2.0, OpenSea, Maker, Aave, and Axie Infinity. And we offer compensation packages on par with big tech. Learn more at quantstamp.com careers. That's quantstamp.com careers.
0: So Elizabeth, we've spoken a lot over the years about how, of course, the continent is not monolithic. And there are different uh, cultural norms around money and investment. There are different regulatory regimes in these different countries. And so when you're building a Pan-African
3: solution, how are you accommodating all those differences? We are using modern business models, right? I mean, when you think of these old African organizations or God forbid, we talk about the development organizations, they have these huge bureaucratic country models where you have like a country head and 22 different layers going into each country. But that doesn't make a lot of sense because there are similarities across borders in many ways. Languages are shared across borders cultural consistencies, trade lines, communications, diaspora are shared across different borders. So it really makes sense to have a model that's more of a continental platform. And while we do definitely have local offices in Nairobi, in Kampala, in Accra, Lagos, Dakar, Bolito down in South Africa, while we have these local offices and these local teams, they're really focused on more regional efforts. So we do almost a matrix approach where we have national footprints we work with regulators in each national market, but we respect the trading routes, diaspora flows, payment flows, and investment that go across those borders and regions. So, for example, today we launched XAF, which is Central African Franc, on the AZA platform, and that's super exciting because there's tons of trade between XOF, which is the West African Franc. Now, this is something that hang out in West and Central Africa know, but this is a really heavy trade route which is, you know, bolstered by a lot of the same languages and diaspora and trade movements. This is a huge area of economic growth. Some of the biggest populations on the continent from Congo Brazzaville, from the DRC into Senegal Ivory Coast. This is enormous power coming out of this region in the next 20 to 30 years. I mean, we're going to see 400 million people in Nigeria alone and all of the economies adjacent to that as well. So this is kind of a trade route and a special thing that Azza and our team have been working on because we understand what that means. And you're not going to really see that on Standard Charter's new product suite or Citibank's product suite. Coming forward, we've brought to the table. We really examine what's happening on the continent and we build infrastructure that meets those needs. So we're bringing to FTX all of the growth, all of the flows that are not being addressed or serviced by the other major brands.
0: I know you've been in consultation with a lot of folks to these different countries and who think about the exclusion that has been seen on the continent from a lot of traditional services, which is, is what you know. There's also a lot of talk about how Africa is really the site of the new colonialism, uh, which mirrors the old colonialism from the standpoint of there's a lot of investment from foreign countries going into Africa all over the continent, right? Particularly located in certain jurisdictions. I mean, for sure, we can tease that out as to why that might be. But nevertheless, there's a tremendous amount of Chinese investment over the past you know decade. Creating predating that the previous decade, uh, American investment actually starting again and European investment as well. And there's a lot of, of concern around this being the new colonial pipeline to kind of creating, whether it's, you know, surveillance mechanisms that come in with the use of maybe Chinese CBDC or other kinds of models. And so what are you seeing? What is your perception of what's actually happening there in terms of this kind of foreign investment corridor? And is there anything you're addressing in your product build?
3: I'm just smiling because my head of marketing told me to stop ranting about colonialism and neocolonialism. <laughs> on these things. Like, like you're you just asked you asked me so I, have no <laughs> I have no chance. No choice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have no choice. Let's do it. My favorite topic. Well, you <laughs> are completely right, and it is like super gross. And there's a lot of things happening, but let's split the continent and the world right now into two. You know, traditional finance and. The future of finance, you know, the old ways, the new ways. I mean, we have a lot of government and multilateral partnerships with what we would call neo-colonial governments and so- sovereign powers who are investing and in making these agreements at a very high level. But then we have the informal economy, which is not so informal. The informal exchange rates are the real exchange rates in some of these markets, like in Nigeria. So, uh, Yes. At the very senior sovereign governmental level, you're seeing these investments and these partnerships between China, the United States, Turkey, Lebanon, lots of very powerful, what I would call government and old economy players are still doing these partnerships. And then you have the hundreds of million people under the age of 40 that are just so excited to do something different and do something new. And they're trading and they're building completely outside those structures so they are not engaging in the same ways of business and relationships and agreements that we see at the top level. And what's super exciting there is that's the landscape that's up for grab by companies that are interested in working in a much more equitable, fair and engaging way. And I think, yes, we can let those governments keep on making these deals that don't service their citizens. Or maybe sometimes they do, but in in different ways. But we can also be really excited about the way that the citizens and the users of these countries can access this technology and access companies around the world that share their values. So I think right now what access to the new economy and Web3 does is it gives choice to a lot of users in these markets that might not agree with what's happening elsewhere. And I would say that, you know, there's a lot of young government members now, a lot of change in government happening, a lot of really cool regulation that's coming out across the continent. I mean, we're seeing white papers, committees on digital currencies, on alternative investing. Every other day, we're seeing reversals of policy. So I think, you know, these things are existing in parallel. And that's really exciting because the way to stop those kind of colonial controlling monopoly economies from developing and that's my second favorite topic is the monopolies that have co-opted a lot of the economies on this continent specifically with the telcos that's no longer the model that can be followed if users are able to access any company's services around the world and that's super exciting and that's what we've kept building to be that bridge to bring users from the African continent onto any platform they choose and for those platforms to build for these users and to know that they exist and they can be accessed and they're ready and able to trade like anybody else.
2: I am going to ask something that maybe your marketing director is also going to say, oh, my goodness, why can't we just get on, on message? But we started out, as I did a big monologue, talking about this big geopolitical moment and Africa's place in it, which, of course, is there are politically sensitive issues here. But it strikes me that part of this is Africa is a piece of this, what this future looks like. I don't necessarily see it as a battle between West and East. I see it as a battle between open systems and closed systems. And we can put country labels on that if we want to, but at the end of the day, that's the biggest challenge here. So I wonder whether you can speak to that, how important you know, the kind of platforms, the open s- structures that you want to build into these places, how that matters for Africa and its own capacity to be a contributor to global innovation, other than a client of a colonial power or some sort of external system? Because even if we think about it as nation states, there's a real strong parallel with the way we design our technological structures as well. So
3: that's a great question. And I think, Michael, you know, it follows the flow of capital and investment in, you know, economic stimulation and in innovation. A lot of investors, a lot of, you know, attention, a lot of spotlight, a lot of highly educated population who wants to build companies was going elsewhere. And even a lot of the really bright, young African developers were traveling and working abroad. And what we've seen in the last 10 to 15 years is the reversal of that. We've seen a lot of Nigerian startups just killing it. We've seen South African companies dominate. We've seen Ghanaian. we've seen Uganda and Kenyan. Even Egyptian now is taking over the venture space. So we're finally coming to the place where these companies can connect and have that change that we weren't seeing before. I mean, I think, you know, when I first moved to Kenya in 2009, there was still this narrative that we were waiting to be included. And, you know, why are we cut off? And then I always give the anecdote of the Nigerian domestic payment system, which is one of the best on the African continent, because it was cut off from the rest of the world. so They developed their own credit card and switch system that had to work. And so, haha, it worked awesome. <laughs> so, and, you know, it was way better than what we still have in the United States, to be honest. And that's why there's so many Nigerian fintechs based around that system. So I think, you know, there's two narratives. It's like, are we waiting for Africa to be included or too late? We're building for ourselves and, you know, not just immigrants like me or foreigners like me who come onto the African continent because we're so excited by the energy and the opportunity but so many Africans themselves who are just building these startups everywhere. And it's been inspiring to see that. And, you know, I'm humbled to just join in and uh, this incredible movement across the continent that's been happening in the last 10 and 15 years, starting with Impasa, some before, but mainly around that first mobile money movement. Yes, we've seen continents forgotten by certain groups of people, but at a, you, you can only wait for so long, right? I mean, I, I've talked to you guys over the years, how long and how weird the conversations were with. North American and European investors who were like asking wild questions about Africa. And then finally, we're like, you know what, forget it. We're just going to become profitable and move forward. <laughs> and so that's what happened. And, and then people came to us to ask to join in the party. No yeah. kidding, right? And I think it's not only the innovation that we're
0: seeing from the continent as a general matter. I mean, just the, the, pro- the different sort of problem set and problem space and the approach you know, to those problem spaces, some of which are similar to those that are experienced all around the world. Uh, but some of which are unique, I think, to the African context, or even, you know, even to a country context, which might not necessarily uh, translate to the entire continent, but at least have kind of functionality for other places that are experiencing similar kinds of issues or problems. But I also think that some of the legacy infrastructure, you know, the problems of that infrastructure, right, are not necessarily problems that have to be addressed by new solutions, because you're not stuck with legacy systems and, and kind of building on that foundation, you're building a new on a new foundation, which can actually be more powerful and move faster. And so I love how you're thinking about the empowerment and agency that open systems can provide, but combining that with competition and basically saying, look, everybody else, I mean, like we are able to basically create an offering that's going to respond to this particular market. The TAM is massive, I mean, absolutely gigantic. And you should give us some data on that. I know I know, Michael said it earlier, but I'd love to know how you think about that and the population there, uh, but also a young population that's going to be more and more digitally and even crypto native. So the opportunity is tremendous. I think it is to the lack of imagination. It's not even imagination, it doesn't even require imagination. It's just a lack of sheer observational ability by <laughs> other folks to kind of pay attention to what's already been happening uh, for quite a quite a time on the continent. But curious to know how you kind of think about the population, how you think about sort of the market, you know, for these kinds of services. You alluded a bit to the younger population, to sort of being already digitally native to M-Pesa and things like that. But kind of what are you building on when you think about the foundation that exists kind of culturally but also technically there?
3: Yeah. Let me talk a little bit about the nuance of working on the African continent. It's different than working on the subcontinent in India. You know, yes, similar in some ways, but it's still one government in India, and there's still over 50 governments on the African continent or in Southeast Asia. You have a lot more cultural similarities sometimes, and certainly with the way that some of the governments are working that you do in in certain regions of Africa. And I think something that scared a lot of global investors in, in a silly way or you know, a lot of founders originally was they had to be a cross-border business, a distributed business from the get-go to patch together several markets that would see the same size of Korea in the next three years, or in India in the next five years. Of course, when we're talking thirty years, twenty years, we're seeing huge market growth and huge potential for even you know numbers that are uh, that are mind-blowing. But right now, what we're seeing is still numbers that individually, except for Nigeria, Egypt, South Africa, are still relatively small in comparison to other emerging markets like Brazil, or India, or even Southeast Asian markets like Philippines or or Thailand. Um, And certainly when you're thinking about Korea or like another hotbed of digital currency activity. So I think that means two things. That means one, it is a bit more of a long term play because the opportunity is immense. We haven't even begun To get into our growth phase and a lot of those other markets are already at their peak of growth the second thing is the operational model must be nimble and must be very distributed and yet at the same time very respectful and very optimized and i think it's funny to me that a lot of digital currency companies are always like oh we're you know a distributed company or we're very much fragmented but to really do that well you have to understand each node in, in the system And that's what we we're doing very well from day one. We have teams that are all over the continent, up in Europe and across the Middle East. And we all work with each other in a really respectful, optimized, streamlined way. And we have our own culture on top of that. And I think we're very proud of that, that culture and that model. People are even telling me that we're bragging about that model. (laughs) But I think it's because we have to join together these markets right now in the very short term to see the same size growth. Now, of course, Nigeria and South Africa are huge markets in this space, two of the largest markets globally for crypto. Egypt has the potential for that, but of course, the regulations are still quite restrictive. Now, there's a lot of regulatory nuance in both those markets. So it's not as free and easy as getting a license and launching in a market like Korea. So, and both of the regulations are very nuanced, even between them. So, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to open these markets. The barrier to entry is high. The need for local knowledge
2: is immense. You know, Elizabeth, I think you've alluded to some of this in, in your comments, but you've really been on a journey, right, from Person now to Azure. And it, it's interesting, you started out, there was this Bitcoin remittances project that you had, and you evolved into in something that became much more, I think, of an integrated payment system that was touching a lot less crypto, if I'm not mistaken. And now we see you really, you know, I mean, you, I think you've offered crypto assets as part of this, but now you really, it seems to me, really getting back into the blockchain space, which may reflect as much as anything else, the journey that crypto itself has been on. But can you talk a little bit about the journey yourself, about the lessons that you've learned about how you've built from the sort of idealist that I met, you know, eight or nine years ago with BitPacer to this sort of pragmatic approach that now has brought you to this position?
3: I'm still an optimist, Michael, don't worry. (laughs) No, actually, you know, we knew it was going to be hard work because I had worked in microfinance before and I had rated most of the microfinance banks D or below because I saw how hard it was to actually get this exciting, sexy idea functional. And so when we started the business, we thought about one quarter, how do we go between Kenya and the UK? And when we started with Bitcoin, it was because there was no other counterparty that would work with us. And we were just super excited about the speed. We also weren't able to build into the MFAS system because they didn't really like new fintechs coming in and Bitcoin was open source. We were able to access that. So it was from that one, you know, ability to just gain access that we were so excited. Very quickly, we realized there was a lot of infrastructure around the cryptocurrency space that still wasn't built. The payouts and the pay-in in the UK were the problem actually we had great pay in and payouts in kenya but we had very slow pay in payouts in the uk and europe and in the us it was even slower so we were going to canada and hong kong because those were the fastest exchanges but there weren't a lot of canadians or people from hong kong and nairobi so it really wasn't working out for us and then we realized actually there were a lot in uganda and kenya so then we started a triangle going into the neighboring markets and selling across border. And then we realized that actually, again, why are we constantly looking outward? Why don't we look in, out, and across? And so really, it became about trading the African currencies for wherever they were needed, rather than us pushing what we thought was needed. And we saw people interested in cryptocurrencies the whole time. You know, It's just when we started to do more of our own infrastructure building, we built our own on and off ramps in Nigeria, in Uganda, in the UK, in Europe we stopped needing other counterparties. And then we didn't really need a lot of middle currencies, whether they were crypto or not. So it wasn't that we stopped using it. It was just that we kept building our own infrastructure and our platform became big, bigger. So we were using it internally, but we didn't need it to interface with so many external counterparties anymore. And you know, our volumes have just grown wildly over the last nine years. So we were doing more every year, but you're right, as a fraction of the total percentage, we had a lot of remittance companies working with us. So it was the same model, but we were just kind of going up the vertical a bit. And instead of doing a retail model, we were working for remittance companies, helping them process. And you know, some of them started out with fiat and now trade in stable coins. So you're right, you know, when we first started out, we said, hey, it's easier. We're doing it ourselves as a retail model. It's easier, it's faster, it's better. And then we said, okay, we'll work with you. And they thought it's not faster yet. And then they tried stable coins and realized, hey, wait a second. We understand what you've been talking about and have come back around on that. And with FTX, they really have the capacity to launch products with liquidity that's sourced globally. So that means they're allowed to launch a product that customers all over the world are buying and selling. That means better pricing, better speed, more access. That's something that only an exchange of that size can offer. So it's super exciting for us to connect the African users to that kind of exchange. And that's what we've been really good at the whole time, which is bringing people on and into the space. And whether we're bringing them on into the space to work with remittance companies or corporates or one of the largest platforms in the world, it's the same core business for us. So Elizabeth, I'm I'm
0: here at South by in Austin, and I just did a panel on Basically, cashless surveillance and and de-risking came up as a major topic. And so I want to just talk about that a bit because, of course, we think a lot about the Bank Secrecy Act. We talked about it on the show. I think when we had you on uh, the previous episode, we talked about that a bit and how that's really affected correspondent banking relationships and the the ability to move money in and out of the continent. And not just the continent, but, you know, other kinds of places, the Caribbean, the islands, certain ASEAN countries, others as well. How are you thinking about those relationships or what are you seeing, first of all, on the continent as a general matter? Are you seeing that there is appetite and banks understand this? I know you're obviously oppositional to those banks in many ways by building new opportunities, but are you seeing that continuing to be the case? Are you seeing it get worse? Uh, has there been anything around this whole situation with Russia and new sanctions and all of that that's been relevant to the work that you're doing? Or how are you seeing some of these kinds of concerns play out? Yeah.
3: Well, the scarcity of correspondent bank relationships has been a problem forever on the continent. It always seems worse, but I guess it was never better. Um, and there's less and less. People change their mind a little bit on them. There have been some neobanks with some great plans, but very quickly those neobanks also realize that their own correspondent banking relationship is scarce. So they change pretty quick. I think the long term goal has to just be to work around it and with pooling models and with other kinds of settlement mechanisms. I really just don't think a centralized settlement system that is not interested in working with unique markets around the world is one that's going to work for emerging markets. So it's the same old tune. Now, what we have seen lately is, you know, excitement about crypto because there's more regulation happening and everybody's excited about it. And then with the war, everybody is suddenly scared that crypto is being used by their own people. And we've seen some banks stop acquiring new customers which is really hard to hear because there's also so much crypto being mobilized to help in the situation with the right actor. So, you know, again, we're back to square one where, you know, there are honest customers and there are dishonest customers. And if we close the bank, nobody uses it. So how do we get around that? And I think we have to be smarter about how we identify which channels should stay open and which shouldn't. And, you know, who gets penalized in these situations. And certainly, you know, I remember when I think it was BBVA closed every single account in the entire country of Spain owned by a Chinese citizen because there was one potential AML issue with one account. And then they said, let's throw in the payment companies as well and close all the PSP accounts. So, I mean, overreaction is historically a problem and it's still coming to be the case. Now, we understand in situations like this why this happens, but why that reverberates to the African continent is still a question mark to me. But certainly something
2: we keep seeing. I'm nodding my head constantly because I I still to this day frequently cite some I think two words you used in an answer to a question that at a panel that you and I were on. Somebody asked a question, they just shut down the Somalian corridor in two thousand fourteen because of some sort of terror situation. And a question just said, what happens to the people who were receiving those remittances when these blanket type approaches happen? And you said, they starve. And it just struck me as just really powerful. And I I want to go there now because, of course, as sad as this is, this moment, yes, it is an opportunity. We can break out, try some new things. And that de-risking thing is real. But a huge part of the problem here, of course, is food, right? I mean, there are very real concerns about a famine across the continent as a result of the threats to the grain production in Ukraine and and Russia and other developing countries as well. These These are just very real problems. And the traditional approach to that is going to be humanitarian disaster relief, et cetera, et cetera. But what you're dealing with here, it's not about food production, but it really is about empowering locally the access to technologies to build systems for themselves. How do you frame that in this, in this context? You know, what is the message to Africans right now as they face this problem that they didn't create? They're about to inherit all these problems. Once again, they'll get an Oxfam and everybody coming to try to fix the problems for them. How do you frame that like self-help solution aspect? Because it's clear, you've already said, there's already a huge amount of innovation happening in the continent.
3: Well, let me just first do a little prelude by the fact that, you know, a lot of these markets are not starving on the African continent right now. And there are more Range Rovers per capita in Lagos than most (laughs) European capitals. (laughs) So let me just say that. (laughs) Why don't we use Afghanistan as a, a case study since it already happened and we saw what went down? When they shut down the banking system, there was no access to funds. And everybody was calling me saying, hey, how do we use your model to work there? And we said, well, you know, you need local brokers who have access and you need a whole local community of liquidity of people being able to buy and sell and hand that out. And that was heavily reliant upon the largest remittance companies who were monopolies like Western Union and MoneyGram." And so when Muslim and and MoneyGram cut out all the competition and, you know, the government sponsors that and the development agencies sponsor that and they get shut down, everybody starves. Right. And then they slowly let them open and they they are working with that monopoly. Now, let's take a turn and look what's happening in a place like Senegal, where you had a very strong local monopoly. It broke down and now you have four to five new entrants coming into the market who are offering local digital services, local mobile money it's now super easy in Dakar to, you know, buy, sell, trade, deposit, withdraw on local digital solutions, whether it's mobile money or it's cash to mobile. That to me is the hedge against being de-risked by an international corporation or, you know, one of the large monopolies going offline. Again, what I talked about before about these kind of bifurcation of the economy where you have the traditional old way that's heavily on the same two or three banks and maybe MoneyGram, or Western Union, and then all of the new digital economy run by young entrepreneurs that are speaking and servicing and growing companies fit for the new young digital population. And that's the hedge. I don't know that much about what the digital economy in Ukraine looked like before the war, but I think, you know, in markets where we have been cut off, in markets where we've seen so much nonsense being de-risked and also just like monopolies controlling and a lot of the economy, the innovation and the need for mushrooming out new innovative entrants has really shown it can be done. And it's been super exciting to see that. So that gives me hope that in the next 10 years, if we ever see a situation again or continues like what happened in Afghanistan and what's happening before our eyes in Ukraine, a lot of these markets will have had more innovation, more competition and more options
2: so I think the definition of an optimist probably a good one for it, Elizabeth, would be in the face of something as kind of tragic and disturbing as what we're facing in the world right now, you can still conceive of and talk about opportunities to grow and everything else. And and you're doing that and it's, you know, a mark of how much of a, a great believer you are in the opportunities that this technologies and, and, and the opportunities that exist with relations like those of Africa. So It's always a joy talking to you. I I learn so much when we do, and so congratulations on this tremendous new partnership. And I wish you all the best. Thanks for joining us today for being flexible around our own sort of technical challenges (laughs) and and the like. Looking forward to catching up with you soon, Uh, Sheila Warren. Thank you as always for joining me. I wish we could have done this in person, right next to each other, but unfortunately we'll have to wait till the next time to do that. And Elizabeth, yes, next time we're all three of us together, we should do it. But anyway. Look, it was a pleasure and thank you all as always for watching or listening to Money Reimagined and come back next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. That's all. Bye for now.
0: You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Cheeler Warren, Michael J. Casey and guest Elizabeth Rossiello. Our theme song is Shepherd. This episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with additional production support from Eleanor Paul and announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Please send us an email at podcast@coindesk.com, at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.